Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm John Marzalek, a co-host for the podcast Voices of the Queer South. I'm here with co-host Morris Ardouin. Hello, Morris. Hello, John. Today, we'll be talking to Robert Fiesler about his book Tinderbox, the untold story of the upstairs lounge fire and the rise of gay liberation, published by W.W. W. Norton. An essential work of American civil rights history Tinderbox mesmerizingly reconstructs the 1973 fire that devastated New Orleans' subterranean gay community. Buried for decades, the upstairs lounge tragedy has only recently emerged as a catalyzing event of the gay liberation movement. In revelatory detail, Robert W. Fiesler chronicles the tragic event that claimed the lives of 31 men and women on June 24, 1973, at a New Orleans bar the largest mass murder of gays until 2016. Relying on unprecedented access to survivors and archives, Fiesler creates an undelible portrait of a closeted blue-collar gay world that flourished before an arsonist ignited an inferno that destroyed an entire community. The aftermath was no less traumatic. Families ashamed to claim loved ones, the Catholic Church refusing proper burial rights, the city impervious to the survivors' needs, revealing a world of toxic prejudice that thrived well past Stonewall. Yet the impassioned activism that followed provide essential to the emergence of a fledgling gay movement. Tinderbox restores honor to a forgotten generation of civil rights martyrs. Our guest, Robert Fiesler, is the 2019 National Lesbian and Gay Journalist Association Journalist of the Year and the acclaimed debut author of Tinderbox, The Untold Story of the Upstairs Lounge Fire and the Rise of Gay Liberation. So he's the winner of the Edgar Award and the Louisiana Literary Award, shortlisted for the Soroyan International Prize for Writing. Queer literary icon Andrew Holleran reviewed Tinderbox as far more than just a history of gay rights. And Michael Cunningham praised it as essential reading at any time. Fiesler graduated co-valedictorian from the Columbia Journalism School and is a recipient of the Pulitzer Traveling Fellowship. Born and raised in Chicago, Fiesler now lives with his husband and dog in New Orleans. Robert, welcome to the show. Hey team, happy to be here. I, I, I wonder if you could begin by telling our listeners about yourself overall. Oh, that I'm like a gay dude, or you you want like my like my short biography, or what would you like to me to tell readers? Um, what if if uh, you were riding up in the elevator with somebody, you got two minutes to tell us who you are? <laughs> oh, okay, what you so, do? Um, I'm a journalist um, and book author um, who was a closeted gay kid that grew up in the 1980s, 1990s Midwest. Um, I wanted to be a writer since I was five years old. I've been, I've long been, and I wasn't really heard as a closeted gay kid growing up. So, um, the, as I, you know, flourished and developed as an adult, I became more and more obsessed with the idea of 
helping other people be heard uh, because I wasn't really heard in the place where I grew up. So I went to journalism school and learned how to write short, grammatically perfect sentences and eventually started writing short, longer stories and eventually started writing novella-length nonfiction and then eventually had the opportunity to uh, write my first book about a very important gay topic, which was the Upstairs Lounge Fire, the deadliest fire on record in New Orleans history, um, that in, an event that's now being recognized as uh, the great tragedy in the early LGBT plus rights movement. Um, and I spent about five years researching this book and publishing it, and then an additional two years um, touring it and educating the public about it. And it's been, you know, sort of the greatest adventure and challenge of my life. Cool. Thank Robert, you. I wanted to ask you how you came about writing this book in the first place. I was graduating from journalism school. I graduated very high in my class. I was co-valedictorian, um, and I qualified for a certain uh, graduate awards, and there was a little bit, of, a small but brief window of attention that was being directed at me when I graduated, around 2013 or so. And the dean of the journalism school uh, was this guy named Nicholas Lemon, who writes for The New Yorker, brilliant, brilliant man, who also happens to be um, a, for, a, new, a former New Orleanian who was a baby reporter in the 1970s French Quarter, writing for an alt-weekly called the Vieux Carré Courier. That's where he got his career start. Um, and he was there during the summer when this terrible fire at a gay bar on the rack, you know, the fringes of the French Quarter occurred. And uh, his Nicholas Lemon's first mentor, a, a, an openly gay journalist named Bill Rushton, provided some of the most enterprising coverage of that event way back then. So I was graduating from journalism school and like we are, you know, we're at some sort of soiree type thing. And it's totally awkward because the professors aren't, they have to like talk to the students and the students aren't trying to interact with the professors as real people. Like the barriers are, and then the rules are suddenly coming down. And he sort of drops this truth bomb on me where I, I, was I was talking to him about how in the town that I grew up in, in the early 1920s, how the KKK burned the Catholic church down in my town after, after uh, a mega, what was then the largest rally, and it was the second, the second coming, the second version of the Ku Klux Klan in the early 1920s that was virulently anti-Catholic. And he brought up, I don't, apropos, I suppose that, that that re vaguely reminded him of this event. He can't tell me a ton about it, but about this uh, event that uh, this fire um, at a working class gay bar that it had existed in a kind of hidden pocket uh, of a not very frequented quarter corner bordering the French Quarter in the early 1970s, 32 people died, and that's really all I could tell you about that. And I was like, "Wait, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? Like, this? I, uh, what do you?" And he's like, "I, it's funny, it's too hazy. I can't really recall anything more than that." But the bar, I think, was called the Upstairs Lounge, and from that, that was sort of my initiation. I got bit obsessed. I don't know. It was like a meteor crashing into my life, where I was like, "I'd never heard of this event before. It occurs, uh, you know, in the in the wake." of the early rise of the gay liberation movement, you know, from, you know, uh, the Stonewall riots, are, you know, were in 1970, sorry, 1969 in New York City. So this is a, just a few years, a stone's throw away from Stonewall. Um, and there's, it's this terrible, tragic event that occurred. It was explosive. It destroyed a community. Um, and then it sort of was swept under. And uh, thus birthed my, uh, you know, my one of my greatest life's obsessions, which is like I, I couldn't stop thinking about this upstairs lounge fire. At the time, I was living in Brooklyn with my then boyfriend, who wasn't even yet my fiance. And I like um, 
I, you know, bought a plane ticket to New Orleans and flew out and decided that I was going to stay for a few weeks uh, with the only two people I knew in town and try to research this event or find out anything else about it. I didn't have a book contract at that time. I didn't really have any surefire mechanism or means of knowing this was going to turn into anything, but I just could not stop thinking about this fire. And then the way that, uh, the way that the victims had been mistreated prior to being killed in this event. And then, uh, the way that those who died were then denied dignity in their deaths. And then the way that that was all a race. I mean, it was so the, the tragedies were so layered and manifold that I, I would lay up at night obsessed thinking about this. And then, uh, when I got to new Orleans, of course, it was just kind of, um, I don't, I don't want to say it was off to the races, but I just, it was almost an existential crisis where I suddenly thought, what the hell am I doing here? Like I'm researching this fire. I don't know what the, why this is my major project after I graduated from journalism school, but I guess I maybe is, should this be my project? Am I the right person to do this? I've never written a book before. I started delving into archives and, you know, reading the police reports of the upstairs lounge fire. And then um, eventually started trying ask, to ask questions around town of people who might know people who survived the fire or witnessed the fire. Initially, I, you know, I started hitting a lot of walls. I was an outsider. I didn't understand that New Orleans is, you know, a foreign country in U.S. soil. It's a very unique world where the, it, it's a culture that requires an introduction um, in many senses that'll help, you know, grease your way. Uh, and and I, I felt like um, Charles Ryder and Brideshead, Brideshead Revisited, where he's talking about all walking around all and fa- um, all the the clo- cloistered walls of Oxford and feeling sort of alone in it. And then I I met you know a person who would become my my fixer or the key into into the gay New Orleans subculture. Where I emailed this local gay historian named Frank Perez, who yeah. um, I now call the dirty uncle of the French Quarter. <laughs> but like he, um, I asked Frank, you know, would you be willing to talk to me about, you know, queer New Orleans history, not just the upstairs lunch fire, but it sounds like your expertise is extensive and I want to cover that context too. He said, yeah. And I'm like, okay, so where would you like to interview? Presuming he's going to say like Tulane or something like, he's like, just, uh, I'm a bar fly. Just meet me at Cafe Lafitte and Exile. Oh, that's a great place. So yeah. I, went, I went to the oldest gay bar in New Orleans and we sat in the back corner of that triangular bar. Well, I fed him Miller High Life's and then I recorded. I pretty much, I just started, I pressed record and I, I got a download um, about everything <laughs> involving, involving this town and its, and its uh, sordid and fascinating uh, queer past. Um, and then from Frank, I mean, it was it, it was just like um, it, what Charles Ryder describes as finding that lower low door in the wall of Oxford that leads to an enchanted city. Um, that's sort of what happened. He, I, I started getting introductions through Frank, and then uh, you know he get, he just via you know started sending me links and contacts to my first upstairs lounge witnesses and survivors. Um, and then from from then on, it, 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 the information flow has not stopped. Even post publication, I keep finding out new things about this event that was um, so swept off the table that uh, aspects of it are are currently still contemporary news. There are still families of upstairs lounge victims that are seeking restitution or trying to exhume bodies uh, from Potter's Fields or seeking uh, oh, other ways of of um, exalting and bringing about justice for individuals denied it way back then. But that was sort of um, how I happened upon the story and how I, you know, how it crashed into my life. And I, I was fundamentally changed as a person by it. 
it's just a it's just a wonderful book and Morris and I have so many questions we want to ask you but I guess we have to start someplace so sure. yeah you know I, I've obviously been and I know you have to many of the gay bars in New Orleans and I'm assuming you have two more yeah um, I was yeah. actually at them yesterday well technically no I um two go drinks are back in New Orleans right so you can oh, go to a bar okay. you, can, you can go to any any of the bars in the French Quarter and get it to go and yeah, um, yeah. so I hadn't had for, you know, for several months, I have not have a, had a legitimate Guinness pint, like a draft. So, of course, we, my husband and I went to the quarter. We had masks on, et cetera. But we went, we just, we're, we told each other, we're just going to get one pint. And of course, that <laughs> never happens, right? I'm not so, in New Orleans. No, know, so we, no. we pretty much, we're trying to help restabilize the economy if, if that <laughs> type of thing is possible by what, going to, for to-go drinks in as many bars as we could last night. That's but, awesome. Um, but yeah, I mean, so um, I, I've been to all of I'm sure you've been to all of them. Oh, too, many. John. Well, and one of the things I wondered about is, you know, I've been to the spot when I was living there and even after where the upstairs, upstairs lounge was, and I've seen the marker that's on the sidewalk. And yeah. I don't know, I wondered if you could kind of paint us a picture, like if we could go back in time and before the fire and walk up into that bar, you know, what would it be like having a drink in there? What would we experience? <sighs> Um, sure. I've thought about this a lot, um, actually, trying to because it, it, it was really important to me to not just portray this place as this this tomb of death when really this was a lively bar that, that existed for three years and had countless stories that if you if you sat them all on a scale would outweigh that one event that destroyed the place. Um, but so I um, the upstairs lounge was a working class um, gay bar. It, it was somewhat. It could be somewhat mixed in terms of attracting a, a straight crowd too. But that was mostly um, female beards that gay men would bring. You know, gay, female best friends that gay men would bring to the bar. Um, it was a place that was on a not very frequented corner uh, of uh, that was on the edge of the French Quarter and the Central Business District. So it was the corner of Iberville Street and Charters. Mm-hmm. Um, and you could, um, the upstairs lounge was located in the second story of this building. Um, so if you were passing by that intersection, there wasn't anything really advertising the bar's existence. It was very, uh, it was almost kind of like held there discreetly, like a castle keep or something like that. People inside the bar could see what was going on in the street below. Very few people on the street below could would even guess that a business existed up on the second floor. And um, to access the upstairs lounge, you would go to a side door, which had a separate address. Um, and there would be a, there's a little black awning and just like these nondescript words that said upstairs. There was, it was, this uh, wasn't a gay bar that advertised it. It wasn't like a flashing neon sign that said like cock, you know, nothing like that. <laughs> I just was just like, it, oh. this was a place for those in the know, you know, that those in the know knew this place existed. And this was, this was where they would go to find the oasis. If you were just stumbling around the quarter though, you would probably have chosen any of the other, you know, three or four bars that were just, you know, within a stumbling zone of the upstairs lounge as, as a, as a place more likely to go. Um, so to, and then to get into the upstairs lounge, you would walk into a front door um, and then you would head up this uh, 13 steps up a twisting winding staircase to the second mm-hmm. to the second floor, and then uh, the walls were all kind of cloaked in red a burlap fabric and stuff, and they were all decorated. But it was almost kind of like, you have to imagine it would be like um, in the 1970s if you were a working class gay man, you'd be looking over your shoulder to make sure no one was noticing where you were walking in, even though yeah. the bar wasn't discre- wasn't advertised. You wanted to make sure that you hadn't been followed when you got to the bar, to, to your gay bar. Then you would walk up the staircase and. Um, it would be kind of like entering a portal. You'd be going up, up in a way, um, 
to the world uh, you saw it where you could drop your masks and be yourself mm. and away from the oppression, uh, the, the oppression below and, and into your favorite social club. Then you would, you, at the, after a staircase landing, there's an additional turn and there's a metal door. Uh, most, a lot of, some people would knock or the board, you could just open up the door and then there would be this, um, you would suddenly and instantaneously enter this um, communal gathering space, red uh, flocked uh, wallpaper everywhere, uh, 1970s beefcake posters of men, um, red everything. I mean, it was just tacky decorations all, all over the place where um, it would be like, uh, there would be even like the linoleum was di- on the bar that was right, you know, located right close to the door in the front room was red, um, red bar stools, et cetera. And then um, there'd be decorations hanging from the ceiling and then right across from you as you entered the bar was a white baby grand piano where normally oh, yeah. some drunken queen, if there, it wasn't a professional, there'd be some drunken queen, you know, sitting down there playing a ditty or two. And oftentimes, guess what? It would be show tunes, okay? Of course, of course, yeah. Um, and that was the front room to the bar, um, which would be um, when you entered too, generally the bartender, there was, who was the heart and soul of the place, was the manager, a gentleman named Buddy Rasmussen. He was Douglas. Buddy was his nickname. A lot of gay men in that, those, that, those eras went by nicknames and aliases as a means of protection. Uh. Uh, but Buddy would then notice you um, if you were a regular, and he had a microphone and speakers behind the bar, and he'd be like, at mimicking Ed McMahon from The Tonight Show, he'd be like, "Here's Luther," or he'd be like, "Here's John," right? like, and, uh, uh, and then right. everyone would sort of clap for you, and you would you would suddenly recognize yourself and your place in this gay version, gay nineteen machos macho version of Cheers, essentially. Cheers, All right. yeah, norm, <laughs> yeah. It would be it's that sort of environment where then you'd sit down. Uh, Buddy would uh, was a great um, promoter of dialogue. This was there were no TVs in the bar. This was an era where people would go to in the you know the era the era before you know uh, grinder or <laughs> these things or even cell phones where people would go to the bar to strike up a conversation with with a stranger with new people, and uh, Buddy would usually provide an introduction and then you would start talking casually with a person who was a, a blue collar discreet gay person like yourself. Um, and you would, over time, make friends with the regulars. And it wasn't really, a, it, was a, it was a social space. It wasn't a multi-purpose social space. It wasn't really a hookup site. Although people did start dating from there and became committed. There were some people who became, were, started off as friends, became committed couples. But it wasn't a spot where you would see uh, queer folk, like, you know, um, groping each other in the corner. There was no tea room sex. Um, no, for the seventies, um, no drug usage was permitted in the bar, which was exceptional for, for the French quarter at that period of time. But that rule was strictly enforced. Oh, uh, there was also no hustling. So there wasn't any prostitution, although, mm. although it was egalitarian. So if you were a hustler, a sex worker, you were permitted to drink inside the upstairs lounge, but you could not ply your trade. You had to be on break when you were there. Um, so for example, a hustler who went by the nickname Napoleon, who dressed up as like the French, dick, you know, general? I remember reading that queer yeah. calling card. He did meet his, you know, strike up a conversation with a, a gentleman named Stanley Plaisance, and love did flourish from there. The Stanley and Napoleon did become a committed couple. Um, and the upstairs lounge was also a place where, uniquely, you would see black gay men drinking and and uh, ch- talking and sometimes romantically pursuing white gay men. Very unique for the early 1970s. Very unique, yeah, yeah um, in New Orleans. Yeah, mm-hmm. Most most uh, 
hypocritically so we look back now back uh, on this now back then um it was considered standard fare that black gay men would drink in separate bar than uh than white gay men and some of the most elite gay establishments um dixie's on bourbon street for example which had closed by 73 but or or uh, uh cafe lafitte in exile uh were would not permit um that black gay men um, inside uh, the establishment. Hmm. This was just considered uh, the reality. So the black. I remember in the eighties, it was like that. Mid eighties, um, when I was in college, there was a separate black bar on Rampart Street. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah there's sad. one called the Page still that exists. It's the last black gay bar that exists, and it's an, um, uh, which is a, sort of a remnant of that era, but also an mm-hmm. important community gathering place where the black sure. queer, commu- queer community can um can can um hold events etc uh hold, has a different purpose now but back then it was because of um it was not by choice it was by you know demand otherwise black queer folk would not have had any place to to uh to meet each other so yeah. um but uniquely the upstairs lounge um did permit um black gay men to drink side by side white gay men so you would and also not just drink but date which was um interracial court gay courtship was not uh, common uh, in the seventies in the South or nationally. I mean, the 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 ter- the, the terms uh, of the street parlance, which is offensive now, was snow, which was uh, white people got gay men got to be like they were like Snow White, and then black gay men were referred to as dinge, meaning dingy or dirty. It's very it's like uh, terrible, terrible yeah. nicknames. Very common. You would you, it wouldn't have been, even been considered offensive. Most people wouldn't blink to consider that they were they were sneaking seeking snow or dinge that night. So there was like a sort of eroticization placed on top of the offensiveness, but you wouldn't hear those words spoken in the upstairs lounge. We're also, um, I, I don't know how to like, you know, layer on all the, the ways that this bar was just like ahead of its time, but also early gender minorities would be welcomed. So um, uh, men who, they were called femmes or um, which was uh, then was the term in the, in the early 1970s, but indiv- or, or individuals who would then self-identify as cross-dressers, or sometimes they would say transsexual. The word transgender did not exist in usage at that period of time. And also the concept of gender phoria was not, gender dysphoria, not well known, or, and especially not well understood in a place like New Orleans. Um, so um, at, at that period of time, though, individuals who would probably now, post-talk now we're talking, would identify as transgender, would be, um, were welcome in the upstairs lounge. Um, and they would imbibe and drink several of these individuals, one named Regina Adams, another a fan, uh, another person named Marcy Marcel, became famed uh, singers and performers that uh, stuck around in New Orleans and, and were, are really like celebrated individuals. Um, but they, they, um, they frequented the upstairs lounge um, and were quite yeah. well known then. And Regina, um, actually, Regina Adams started dating um, her lover, who was a black gay man named Reginald Adams at the upstairs lounge, they were initially introduced and encouraged to date uh, by Buddy, who sensed that there was some sort of romantic sparks flying. Um, Mm. So that's a little bit of the character and the flavor of the play. Um, I'd like us to move. um, Bobby, you just answered the first part of my question, which was about the the different types of um, of working class versus an upper class type gay community Mm. and that, that, that whole issue of the nuances that were happening in that place 
that you bring mm. out in your book that that were not happening broadly, which leads me to part two of my question, which sure. is about the. Um, so I don't, I don't want to. We don't have a whole lot of time, so I want to make sure I get to. Sure. Uh, the 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 premise of your book, which you get to right early on in the book, about how this incident took the gay rights movement and um, gave it some some cohesion. And people around the country, movements around, many movements around the country, even in New York at Stonewall, were beginning to, after this, coalesce for the first time or for one of the first times where this incident started making that happen. Tell us yep. a little a bit about that pre-incident um, and then how it started happening uh, after the fact, because I found that uh, fascinating. Um, I also, I want to tell you in the, in the conversation just before this about the, the everyday working people. I, mm-hmm. and, and how how special that place and how tucked away it was. I grew up. I, I was in 1977 in my senior year in high school, mm-hmm. and our bar um, was in Lafayette, and the same kind of place where you snuck around, and it was the same kind of people, same kind of different demographics. So I was struck by these people when I was reading this book, and how much it made me feel as though I know these guys. Oh, um, grateful. Yeah, yeah. grateful. Yeah. Sure. So um, that was very, very powerful to me. But anyway, I'd like to get to the point about that, the, the, the movement. Um, if sure. you could tell us a bit about that. So in, in the aftermath of the upstairs lounge fires, what you're getting, um, the, yes. uh, the word, word uh, sort of rang out far and wide that um, a, a terrible calamity had hit this, uh, had hit this uh, gay bar located um, on the fringe of the French Quarter. And uh, a, a sort of telephone operation, I guess, uh, went, went, out, went out from just like person to person where individuals, because so many people were closeted in New Orleans at the time, there was a huge panic to try to figure out who had died, who was in the bar, who might have been hurt. And people were calling each other left and right, being like, um, do you know, um, is Tad Turner safe? Is so-and-so safe? Have you seen this person? Have you seen this person? And then families start, um, that word got out also to, uh, if in the case of uh, if gay men had still maintained contact with their biological families, families started calling in and around town trying to figure out, is my son dead? Is my son dead? Well, the word um, then f- from there eventually got um, spread uh, that, uh, to, uh, I'm trying to think of the first person that went, went to, I can trace the chain. Oh, okay. So word went out from one of the upstairs lounge survivors, a guy named Rodney, uh, uh, Ronnie Rosenthal, who was from Atlanta, um, that he called his minister, the MCC minister, John Gill in Atlanta and told them what he just experienced. How I'd you know, I was in this bar on, uh, um, in new Orleans, a flame suddenly shot into the room. I couldn't tell if I was going to live or die. I had 30 seconds to choose which way to run, etc. I got out. My friend Ricky happened to get out. I don't know how to help these people, etc. John Gill then calls who was then the most out visible, well-known, uh, gay man in the world, the founder of the Metropolitan Community Church denomination, which was a radical, gay-friendly Christian denomination, a guy named Tr- the founder, founding pastor named Troy Perry, who was in Los Angeles. So Troy hears about this. Then Troy uh, it need, decides, I need to fly to New Orleans right away. I need to assemble, in essence, a tiger team to ma- help help gay liberation manage this emergency because New Orleans, with its semi-closeted community, is not going to know how to handle this emergency moment, how to give aid to this small underground community that existed there. Um, so Troy then gets in contact with, he knows a gentleman named, who is a uh, named Morris Kite, who in Los Angeles had run the Gay Community Center. But for some reason that day, because it was Pride Month, Morris was in Los Angeles attending what was then called the Christopher Street Liberation Parade, not even called a a gay pride parade yet, 
in, in recognition of Stonewall. So Troy gets a hold of Morris. Morris says, I've got to come to New Orleans too. And Morris happens to be staying with a guy named Morty Manford, who um, was a, a legendary gay activist in, in, in New York City, part of the Columbia student protests. Eventually, Morris, uh, Morty Manford's parents uh, would go on to found PFLAG, but Morty Manford's like, I'm in. So all these people descend upon New Orleans the next day to try to manage this emergency. They hold, right. they do what uh, was unheard of at that point. They present themselves as gay to the media. They give their real names. They insist that their pictures be taken. Wow. They hold press conferences. They try to hold the uh, the police uh, uh, to account, um, and they uh, they start uh, fundraising and trying through through national gay support networks they figure out that uh, the early then what was a, considered a ragtag publication in Los Angeles called the advocate could be a good um, housing uh, housing center for donations if people were concerned about how to help upstairs lounge victims and survivors so they start uh, the, the national new orleans memorial fund through the advocate and and gay men and lesbians and gay bars and gay clubs around the country start sending checks to the advocate um, in care of what ha- the the uh, the victims of, in, in New Orleans, and it all sorts of it, it all develops from there, where there's this cohesion and quick, very fast uh, galvanization galvanizing process, um, and then afterwards, um, more Morty, I believe it's Morty Manfred, yeah, he goes on a national tour around the country to Denver, to Philadelphia, to Chicago, spreading word of the upstairs lunch tragedy, continuing to try to raise uh, money for the families of the victims and the survivors. So it was an intensive organizing moment um, that I think has been completely overlooked by uh, LGBT plus history, because this is even before um, the the development of the National Gay Alliance, which actually happened uh, just a few months after this, actually. And they called themselves uh, the National... the New Orleans Emergency Task Force. Um, and these gay leaders still to this day talk about the furious, frenetic activities that they, uh, that they participated in to try to provide any sort of assistance to the, uh, to the survivors of the fire or their families who were being failed by, uh, by every secular and religious institution at that time. Right. Um, and it was, to, to a certain extent, um, successful at being able to provide very quick um, uh, uh, infusions of cash to individuals who needed money just to stay in hospitals and things like that. And it was successful at spreading the story uh, at first for a few days of the upstairs lounge far and wide. It was an international story. It got as far as Australia. I found an article about the upstairs lounge fire in Sydney, Australia from the next update. It was either that Monday or that Tuesday. Um, And before the story then dropped off the map, before the closeted gay elites and the straight elites then decided that this that the upstairs lounge fire was unuse was unuseful um, politically that it was sending the wrong message about uh, about New Orleans and uh, and there was a clamp down from there and before um, these national gay leaders who were really putting a, a, taking a lot of risks and putting a lot of their reputations on the line trying to protect um, the survivors of the upstairs lounge fire before they began to be roundly criticized. Uh, by the gay elites in New Orleans, called fairy carpetbaggers, told to leave, etc. But briefly, after in the, in the wake of this tragedy, there was this really interesting shining moment where you saw a national gay character coalesce yeah. around this event that had happened in New Orleans. Yeah, I, I love that in the book I was cheering. I remember that piece. And, and this is, to me, the beginning of the out movement. Um, you have to come out. 
um, you have to make yourself known, you have to make yourself heard and seen. And kind of like what you said um, uh, when you introduced yourself today, uh, so important, um, such a great moment. And I was so proud um, when I was reading this that it inspired me to like, I have to be more active. I have to be more vocal. I have benefited from a lot of the work of all these people before. Mm. And your book was so inspirational. And that's the point. That was the, that, that's the point in the book where I was cheering instead of screaming or crying. So Good. I'm glad you were cheering. I mean, yeah. like, you know, the point, uh, like there, there's a, the point of engaging and, in, and, uh, and really delving deep into this, uh, into something as tragic and heavy as this is not just to force people to feel bad. I know most people, uh, it, it's not sad porn. Okay. Like that, that is, I'm not trying to bring about a depression for people. The point is to create a sort of, um, a, a an emotional, but also an intellectual revisitation on the, the era of criminalization on the era of the uh, in the past where queer folk were forced to hide in life and in death. And the point of engaging with a kind of tragedy, this profound, I found uh, there's a quote I think about where it's by Aeschylus who was like the, the Greek, the, the, initially the, the great Greek tragedy and the founder of tragedy. The quote he, he talks about, it says, even in our sleep, pain, which cannot forget falls drop by drop upon the heart until in our own despair, against our will comes wisdom. Yeah, and that's wow. the point of engaging with tragedy. It's not to make, it's not to shame individuals in the past who, uh, um, by, by thinking, oh, they were such sheep. We know, so, we know so much more now. Because, I mean, we've all understand the Milgram experiment. We understand that if we, I had to think about if I was to place myself back into an era that was that closeted and where, where attitudes were so negative, about uh, about um, about queer life. Who would I have been? Would I have been brave enough to drink in the upstairs lounge with these with these really special, unique, funny, talented men? I, I had to decide in, in humbling myself. I thought, no, no, I probably would have been too scared to do so. <laughs> so, the, but the point the point of it is uh, uh, of this exercise is is not to is in the point of exercising with any sort of uh, great piece, uh, great tragedy. Um, is not to become, um, not to despair, but it's yeah. to become wiser. Yeah, mm. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, thank you. Uh, I was curious um, what it was like for you to talk to talk to people who were still around, who were around during that time. Mm. I'm guessing you did, right? Yeah, I mean, they were some of the greatest conversations of my life. They were not, um, it wasn't like a funeral dirge. Like it wasn't it, what they, they were intense at moments where I would just, they would describe the fire itself, the sudden, this sudden event that cleaved their life into before and after that there was definitely tears. There was definitely a lot of uh, sense of panic. I was feeling as, as they were telling this story, et cetera. But uh, that leading up to that, that moment that I had to have them talk to me about, um, you know, the upstairs lounge existed for three years prior to this tragedy. And, and many, some of these men had been out for a decade or more prior to this event. So th these were individuals who lived very full lives. And I was hearing a lot of, honestly, I was laughing a lot. I was hearing a lot of funny bar stories, funny stories mm -hmm. about boyfriends and ex-boyfriends, just, uh, just the, full, the fullness in terms of the full periodic table of human nature about what it was really like back then and the flavor of what it was like. I mean, when gay culture was so um, febrile, nascent, 
early, new. Do you know what I mean? It was like, yeah, we yeah. didn't even have like the gay archetypes developed at that point. Like people, if you would say the word bear back then, <laughs> no, nobody understood what you meant. Even though, you know, um, Dwayne Mitch Mitchell, who was, you know, a, a, a very large man who was dating Horace Broussard, who was a notorious chubby chaser, Dwayne Mitch <laughs> Mitchell would be understood um, as a, a bear by cont- contemporary standards. He even had a, people would describe him as having a wild and woolly manner. That was like <laughs> one of the descriptions of that. But, um, That's great. But yeah, yeah. I mean, there, there wasn't even the word twink. All of that was didn't exist at that point. Leather daddies, leather pups. This was These were gay men that had, could like display a range of anything. They could turn the dial from a range of hyper-masculine to hyper-feminine characteristics on a dime. And they'd learn to do so to survive in all of the worlds that they had to pass through day to day. Right. Literally two worlds. Yeah. Mm. And like you said, they go in the bar and everything changes at that moment. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, And it would be, uh, and and that's why, so it it was intense. Um, But at the same time, these conversations just felt like an incredible gift. Uh, And I I sometimes wondered whether I was worthy to be hearing what I was hearing when I was just, I was catching a flavor, a sense of just what it was like to sit at a bar stool in 1973 and to just become one of the, one of the guys in an, in an oasis like that. Did you talk to Reverend Troy Perry also? Oh my gosh, did I? Yes. What what was that like? Oh my gosh, Troy is a, a, a sort of legendary personality. Um, he is, um, a, he's kind of like a, well, how would I compare him? Like a gay Al Sharpton, where he, um, like he's <laughs> an, an, unmistakably, uh, an unmistakable character, one of the most amazing speakers and storytellers, a guy that just says it all from the heart, who just gets started. And I mean, he's quick to laugh, quick to shed tears. And he, he's a guy that just has one of those reality distortion fields, they call it, where you become part of Troy's space. The, mm-hmm. the instant that you're the instant that um, the instant that you're talking to him uh, and, you know, he's one of the great Zelig figures where, he, you know, you, if you trace, you know, the entire story of gay rights and especially the, the entire story of, you know, the, the legalization of same sex marriage. Troy Perry appears throughout history, either in the background or in the foreground of pretty much every marker. Um, and I think a, a great someone could write a great biography talking about the the, uh, the gay history of the United States just through the life of Troy Perry. Um, well, and we should tell the li- I'm sorry to interrupt you. I was going to say we should tell the listeners that Reverend Troy Perry is the founder of the MCC Church. Yep. So he, in 1968, founded the radical gay affirming Metropolitan Community Church in Los Angeles, and then by '73 it had blossomed into about. 40 churches and missions in the U.S. and also some, maybe I think one or two in the U.K. at that point. So it was becoming an international Christian denomination, which spoke to, and it was revolutionary in the way that it appended Christianity to a mission of gay social action. So these were mm-hmm. these were political gays. Okay, these were these were gays that would do sit-ins, protests, um, that would want to get interviewed in the newspaper. They were out. I mean, they were out. And so um, not, uh, well, for most of them were, especially leadership in New Orleans, where there was a contingent of the Metropolitan Community Church, a small chapter, um, it would, that, that, that chapter was more tied to the upstairs lounge crowd. As, as a matter of fact, the, the MCC of New Orleans for several months had held religious services um, in the upstairs lounge on Sundays. 
Um, so they were a bit more um, careful, discreet, following the rules of New Orleans society, not trying to get congregants fired or evicted. Um, but they, again, uh, within these meetings, had aspirations all to be more like Troy Perry. I mean, a lot, a lot of gay men, it, when Troy Perry entered the room, especially in an, or an MCC setting at that point, it was like Elvis, right? It was in the oh, room. Yeah. It, it, it was a, there was a star quality. Um, I, I see the the the, uh, the visual of all this. I'm imagining a movie already going on on this. That's right. That's uh, right. Uh, it's uh, so many great stories within this book that could go in all kinds of directions. Um, I, 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 are we in the right place, uh, John? Is it? Is it? I, I, I want to keep an eye on our time to keep make sure we. Um, we don't We're doing well. It. We're okay. doing well. Okay. Cool. Um, so what's next? Um, is it my turn to ask a question? It is your turn. <laughs> okay, good. Um, I, I just want to tell you, Bobby, I, I was uh, very active in the marriage equality movement in, in New York in, um, since the early 90s. And I marched in the annual pride parades each year with mm. the Legal Defense Fund and people like that. I was a volunteer. I, was, I helped edit some content for them because that's they needed. So I pulled, put my, my hat in that process um and every year every year a year it felt like we were getting nowhere mm-hmm. uh, but i want you i want you to know um and this is my question is leading to my question is that this book inspired me just one reader um to be more active what has been the reaction from the lgbt plus community um after the release of this book to you have you uh, found this that that pe- a lot of people have learned things they had no idea about in the gay community mm-hmm. uh, yeah I, some either had, some had a cursory knowledge of the upstairs lounge fire where they knew a detail or two, but not the, not the full story and not the multi-layered nature of the tragedy itself. Some mistook it um, as a hate crime, and then essentially, in reading this book, felt like they got a different kind of education where they were seeing that this actually um, this had more a lot of to do with also with internalized homophobia and this you know allegedly gay on gay violence. I mean, the, the primary suspect uh, of the upstairs lounge fire was an internally conflicted gay for pay homosexual named, um, named Roger Dale Nunez. He was an individual who um, drunkenly entered the upstairs lounge on the night of the fire only to be violently ejected after he picked a fight minutes before the fire began by screaming, quote, I'm going to burn you all out. Right. Mm, I'll, yeah. I'll repeat that. He says, quote, I'm going to burn you all out. A little specific, right? I mean, that's what criminologists yeah. call motive uh, yeah. um, when, they, yeah. when they're seeking. Yet he was never, um, he was never uh, interviewed or questioned at all yeah. uh, by the police at any point. Um, and then he died by suicide um, a year later, which complicated uh, efforts to, uh, to, you know, to, to state or to match a culprit for this fire, which is still considered an unsolved crime. So, um, so a, a lot of people came at it in some cases with preconceptions and felt like they got they learned more. They got an education from it. Um, I did, I did, and yeah. uh, I mean, uh, or, or, or and what's interesting about the, the, the upstairs lounge fire, too, is that, I mean, it, it provokes a very personal reaction, I think. And I, I, I the way I wrote the book, I wanted people to and it's so mean, I wanted them to fall in love with like one or several of the historical figures that were then oh, yeah. in a significant place Absolutely. at the significant time when the significant event happens. Such that everything that happens in that room, um, in the in those, you know, really, it's three to four crucial minutes, um, is consequential 
um, elating and devastating to people, depending on whether or not the person they related to most makes it out of the room or dies within it. Yeah. Um, and so I, I really wanted people to, to grapple with that, uh, to, the fact that these individuals mattered. They were culturally significant, historically significant, and also people that they, they liked and could relate to. Um, and from there, I, 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 um, a, a lot of the reaction I get that people, uh, it, that people kind of generally feel is that, wow, this, the upstairs lunch fire is one of, is like the great tragedy of mm-hmm. early great, of early, uh, of the early LGBT plus rights movement. And, um, understanding that, um, what, what's interesting is that, you know, tragedies have a lot of narrative power and political power, I think, mm-hmm. like in the way that, um. Texans always talk about the Alamo and, you know, mm-hmm. the English always talk about Dunkirk and what happened there or um, Thermopylae and the Greeks and what they did to, you know, they'd all died, but they were de- died nobly defending the Pers- Persians. The nature of noble loss is very interesting. So I keep seeing now everywhere um, in, in queer conversations where, um, or, or in general political conversations where, where if anyone brings up the possibility that, um, queer folk in the United States don't suffer or didn't suffer oppression, I'll hmm. see the upstairs lounge story cited frequently mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, as ammunition to say, no, th- this event occurred. Um, this kind of thing can happen in America. Um, mm-hmm. and, or it, this kind of thing can happen when you, when you, with that line of thinking. Exactly. Um, and I think that that's actually quite unique. That, that wasn't something I saw happening, uh, as certainly not when I started writing the book. So the... the, the, the um, the, the visibility of this event, the fact that it's on the map um, is new. Yeah. Well, How congratulations on that. that is, that's a huge accomplishment. Um, and, and you're right. I think in the beginning of the book that you say something like uh, every major movement in world history started with something like this. Mm-hmm. I forgot how you put it, but it you know it starts with uh, a lot of death, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, but and and it struck me again. It's one of those things like wow, you know that is so true. That's we take those things for granted and lose the context very easily. Mm-hmm. So thanks. So congratulations. Thank you. Oh, thank you. I wanted to ask you, Robert. How how do you think this this tragedy compares to the Pulse nightclub shooting? Um, well, it's almost like a foil, F-O-I-L. Like it's almost in some ways yeah. it's a parallel and in other ways it's an opposite. Um, yeah. Yeah. Where, uh, so it has a unique relationship to it, but definitely it has one. And it's, it was interesting. The public um, developed the relationship. This isn't something scholars did. So in the wake of the Pulse nightclub shooting in 2016, um, when that armed American citizen named Omar Mateen gunned down 49 people and then injured a bunch of others at Crowded Gate nightclub called Pulse in Orlando, you know, an unimaginable field of slaughter, this, um, this bygone, sort of forgotten, swept to the side tragedy sort of became resurrected in public memory. So you see on Reddit and discussion boards, on Facebook, on Twitter, people were grasping for context, trying to understand um, how, do I, how, do I, how do I process the fact that this kind of carnage happens in America? They, they wanted some sort of antecedent, or does this event have any kind of forebearer? Is there any clue that could help me understand this more? And in, in that mm-hmm. grasping, people found and, and directed some spotlight on the upstairs lounge tragedy. Um, and so, and it was, you know, that in it's the the upstairs lounge tragedy is now the the second deadliest event to strike the LGBT plus community. Um, oh, wow. years, it was the first, and then Pulse is the deadliest event. 
Um, and so in that way, they have a relationship. But in other ways, um, they're very different in the way that in, in the wake of the Pulse nightclub shooting, there was a, a national outpouring of grief. The president, President Obama at that point, spoke about it. Federal buildings flew their flags at half staff. I mean, that's none of that uh, occurred for the upstairs lounge victims. Um, and an, another thing that's um, different is that, um, the, well, Pulse, in my mind, is clearly um, has had hate crime motivations. Uh, where it's it, where mm-hmm. and whereas um, whereas the upstairs lunch fire is a more complicated, more mysterious sort of um, example, in likely gay of gay on gay violence that speaks to the depths and horrors of closeted life itself. Mm-hmm. So that's unique. And then um, uh, uh, besides that too, it's it's with Pulse. You know who the killer is. There's no question. No one doubts that the gunman was the killer at Pulse. Um, and there's that degree of certainty that, that it, you're able to offer, not that this is any sort of, um, uh, this blunts the, 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 um, the grief that people are, are experiencing, but um, there, there's that degree of certainty about what occurred and who did it versus the upstairs yeah. lounge tragedy is this blur, ex- exists and existed for years in this uh, more of a painful, blurry space where people didn't want to know the truth and didn't want to talk about it and didn't want to solve it and didn't want to try to knock on doors if behind those doors was going to be a difficult answer. Yeah. Um, but what I, a thing that's, I, I would say, all ties the legacies uh, in, in a strange sort of kind of, they orbit each other, but they don't, they're not, mm-hmm. they're not, they're not parallel comets. But what's, but what, um, in the wake of the Pulse nightclub shooting and also in the wake of the upstairs lounge fire, there were efforts by the societies of that time to take the tragedy away from the oppressed group. Yes. yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so with Pulse, they wanted to make it all about domestic terrorism, although they didn't want to, they didn't want to solve domestic terrorism. They just wanted to take it away um, from the queer activists. And with the upstairs lounge fire too, they didn't want this to be anything about a human rights dilemma, anything about this, the state of existence for uh, these individuals that have been asked to live in invisibility and then died in invisibility. They did not want that to be about that. So in New Orleans and nationally, the story ended up being, ended up being about fire code standards and sprinkler systems and things mm. like that, um, not about human rights in America. And so in, in, in that way, too, there's, there's um, I think uh, the opposition to queer rights understands that tragedies can have great pow- motivating power. They can become rally cries. And there was an effort mm-hmm. to try to prevent both to, from becoming rally cries with Pulse unsuccessfully. It still is a rally cry. With the upstairs lounge fire, though, for several decades successfully, unfortunately, until the modern revival, um, which started in the late 90s, early 2000s, to get people to recognize what happened in New Orleans in 1973. They want to make queer, queer culture invisible. It sounds yeah. like you're saying yeah. Right. And they, yeah. they want to they, they want to deny you of the of the ability to cite, you know, a queer version of Remember the Alamo. They don't want because that that is that spawns political recruitment. Then that um, that makes individuals who would other be otherwise be um, complacent, obesient in their society. That makes people a little bit more politically radical. Um, and that if you're and if you're the anti queer opposition, that's something that that notion is very threatening. You don't want to give um, the queer community ammunition to seem righteous and just in public. Right, you strip them of their humanity. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. a humanity thing. You, you, mm-hmm. know, you, you don't matter. Um, you don't matter. Yeah, I agree with what you said, Morris. That you know, reading reading your book, Robert, just makes made me want to go out and be even more involved than I already am. It just really really I'm has grateful. that effect. 
I'm grateful. Yeah, yeah. Uh, some of the reactions I have too is what's interesting. Of I, I don't state my politics in public ever, and I don't make the. I try not to make the book about a massive. Uh, it's not agitprop. Um, meaning like I um, and so what's interesting about the upstairs lunch fire is it it allows um, it takes a side door I think to the human heart that allows people it creates um, cognitive dissonance inside people who haven't considered queer oppression before. So after when mm. I give these talks, oftentimes. Um, because I haven't outright stated like, you know, fuck Trump or, you know, like in public or anything like that, because I, I don't, I, I'm not trying to batter through the front door to change a mind. The uh, Oftentimes I'll have like, there'll be conservative women that come up to me, like with these asymmetrical haircuts, sometimes weeping, talking that they're trying to explain to me, gay oppression is real. And I'm like, gotcha. Like, <laughs> like I'm glad, yeah. I, if, this, if this is what it took, um, yeah. then I'm glad you listened today. Mm-hmm. That's great. It's great service. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're almost out of time, but we wanted to make sure we asked you um, what you're working on now, your next project. Sure. So um, with Tinderbox, I explored an unjustly ignored event in a city. And with my second book, I'm going to be uh, um, exploring an unjustly ignored era um, in in our queer past, a little deeper into the queer past, uh. post-World War II, up through the late 1950s and 1960s. It was a 10-year-long anti-gay purge that occurred in Florida, mostly affecting closeted queer teachers, hmm. um, ruining their lives, stripping of them of uh, teaching certificates, all during the McCarthy era under the veil of anti-communism and things like that. And also on, ah. in, in the same vein of um, a lot of a, a lot of the McCarthyite-type people tried to use an, the anti-communism thing to go after um, school integrationists and stuff like that. But so I, I'm very fascinated by this notion that um, the origins of modern homophobia, which people might not be aware of, the modern closet as it was born um, post-World War II, that, that oppression that clamped down in that era came out of um, white supremacy, a lot of mm -hmm. it Southern white yep. supremacy. That's um, right. And so yeah. I, I, it's interesting. Uh, it, we People are very into intersectional conversations now. I am too. To think that um, a lot of this, um, the same opposition uh, to black uh, civil rights in that period um, was uh, the, the opposition white supremacists were, were at the in the same token. With it, with one hand they were battling the NAACP, and with the other hand they were trying to go after closeted queers. Um, that's something that I don't think a lot of folk know about and understand. And I'd like to take that origin story. Um, and blast it out so that um, perhaps modern social conservatives who uh, think that it's a moral stance to be anti-queer will understand that that idea that they might not realize they possess um, came out of uh, the injustices of post-World War II McCarthy era. Um, so that's what I'm going to be pursuing for this next book. When you can tell something about themselves, tell, tell some, something, uh, someone something about what they believe that surprises them, um, I think that's always a wonderful chance to change your mind and to, again, create that kind of dissonance. So I'm really excited for this next book. Oh, I can't wait to read yeah. it and um, have you come back and talk to us about that book in the future. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Yeah. 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 Well, um, uh, John, we got to encourage everybody to go out and get a copy of Tinderbox. Um, Yes, everyone, go get a copy. It's a, it's just a wonderful book. Um, yeah. It's an important. It's a. I think it's going to um, go down if it hasn't already as a classic. And um, I know it's a proud place in my bookshelf right now. Oh, keep going! I love yeah, it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It really, it really changed me. It, it made, it made me really. It pulled out all the emotions you mentioned earlier. But 
it's a, inspirational is what it is to me. So I, I'm thrilled. Uh, that Thank you. I'm grateful. You, I didn't want people to, to just to feel powerless when they read that book. I wanted people to understand that in, in some strange way, the fact that we're talking about the upstairs lounge now, an event that no one, uh, what, what, none of the powers that be wanted people to talk about is a victory in itself. Absolutely. Absolutely. Congratulations again on that because you've, you've, you've changed the world. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> to put it mildly. Uh, yeah. Um, I'm very, very proud to, to, to know you as a result. Um, oh my gosh. Wow. Yeah, we, we need to get going. I need to tell everybody um, to join us again next time for Voices of the Queer South. Goodbye, uh, everybody. Goodbye. Thank you. Bye-bye, nice talking y'all. to you. Bye. You too. Thank you, Bobby.